I'm Susie Anetta, Editor-in-Chief of Design Anthology. And on this episode of the podcast, I'm talking to Tom Kundig of the architecture practice, Olsen Kundig, who's joining us from his home in Seattle. I first of all just wanted to say thank you. I have been a big fan of the work that your firm has been producing for quite a time now and um, so it's it's a pleasure to be chatting with you. Uh, I wanted to talk to you today about your architecture obviously um, and going back to perhaps the beginning I believe that your father was also an architect but I've heard that that was not necessarily uh, always an inspiration for your career choice. Um, So I wanted to know, (laughs) I wanted to know what age you were when you first thought about being an architect and and what that actually meant to you at that time. Oh, it's an interesting question. Um, And it took quite a while, um, frankly, Susie. You know, I, I grew up, you know, in an architectural community and in particular um, an artist and architecture community because where we lived was so small uh, in terms of uh, just general population that, as you might guess, if you're in a, if you're in more of a suburban rural setting, uh, those, those, uh, those people uh, that have, are like, they'll, they'll just actually coalesce into, into a community. So it was actually actually kind of a fantastic place uh, to grow up on, on so many levels. Now, that being said, I'm also aware of some of the uh, issues that just naturally uh, done, uh, not only a, a father-son uh, situation to <laughs> there, uh, in families, but also um, uh, just the, uh, uh, I don't know if it's the dark side, maybe an overstatement, but just some of the difficulties of the architecture profession, whether it's, uh, you know, personal or whether it's, uh, you know, as a business, as a, as a stable, as a stable business or whatever. So I saw, I saw both sides and I saw both sides of the artists also. So I left home as a, as a high school graduate, actually uh, much more interested in uh, hard sciences. And I don't exactly know why I was more interested in hard sciences, but I, but I certainly found them more fascinating to sort of imagine digging into them. Maybe it was the, that the, not that, yeah, they were hard, but they were also, there was something that was somewhat uh, quantitative about it rather than qualitative. It was, uh, it had more sort of purchase in a way, a, a sort of a quantitative purchase if, if description, I'm not sure, but mm. it had a reality to it mm. uh, that I didn't maybe appreciate uh, that the architecture and artist community um, uh, also was uh, a reality. And, I, and so I left thinking, okay, um, physics was something I was sort of interested in. And uh, uh, in particular, because I was spending a lot of time in the landscape as a, as a mountain climber and as a, as a skier, I uh, actually found uh, geophysics particularly interesting towards the earth movements and what the results were and you know all the all the sort of interactions that we all kind of recognize as um 
you know, uh, tectonic plate action. I just found it. I just found it totally fascinating. But I also found um, a part of my uh, upbringing uh, to continue on as fascinating, which was just to watch uh, the extraction industries uh, and the devices that they invented to extract stuff from the ground. And I think I've talked about this in some other venues. I mean, honestly, very destructive forces in many ways to our beautiful natural landscape. But I did find them interesting from uh, just a, a, a physics standpoint, an engineering standpoint, as an inventive standpoint. And that, of course, um, continued on in my career um, into my architecture. Well, at some point, when I went to the University of Washington, I actually um, uh, went into sciences and I found that I was uh, I was struggling a bit I just wasn't as clever in those uh, 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 studies as I felt comfortable that I that I would feel completely comfortable so about my sophomore year in college so re relatively early I began taking art classes and architecture classes mostly as an antidote to the, the science classes and discovered that what I really found interesting was not so much the extremes of either one of those studies, the, the study of physics or the study of, of art, but the, somewhere between the two. And of course, architecture is in fact, as we all know, and we've heard it a million times, architecture is that uh, good architecture is a successful intersection of, of the poetic and the, and the rational. And I became, sort of more appreciative of what uh, the potential of, uh, of architecture and, and began to study architecture in, in more earnest uh, um, uh, sort of uh, direction and uh, ultimately uh, found I um, had a, had a, like a, a profession that made a lot of sense to me and it continues. And I, to this day, I, I, I just pinch myself every day how lucky I am to be able to be involved in this in this uh, industry called architecture. I mean, on so many levels, it touches so many things about our culture, about our environment, or about our um, science, um, about our poetics. You know, it's uh, it's been really it's really been a terrific terrific ride. Mm, that's a great answer. I hope, I hope that makes. Well, I hope that makes sense. You know, it's just you know how it is, and I'm sure everybody listening in probably has gone through the same sort of, um, you know, sort of uh, evolution in their own lives, and you know, what they thought they were um, interested in ultimately wasn't what they were interested in. And somehow they, they shaped their lives based on things as, as it emerged, as it became mature and became a little wiser about uh, not only capabilities, but also, also interests. Yeah, absolutely. I'm 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 often more, uh, to be honest, interested in those stories of, of of maybe a more circuitous kind of journey where, you know, you don't necessarily end up where you think you were going to. I'm I'm sure many of us in our careers have you know wandered off. Mine certainly did. So I I love those sorts of stories. Um, but you mentioned that you studied at and, university. Sorry. Um, go ahead. No, oh, I was. No, I was just going to say, and I'll bet you found that where you wandered off to actually informed where you wandered to with with uh, with sort of more background, with more sort of in, uh, interesting perspectives. And I think that's what I always urge students 
to, to not necessarily always study architecture as sort of this blinded silo, mm. but actually study everything because everything informs what we do as architects. Mm, absolutely. And so your studies were at the University of Washington. You did undergrad and postgrad, I believe. Uh, I'm interested to know what drew you to that school in particular. Was it purely location or was there something about the curriculum at that school that drew you there? <laughs> that's a, well, that's another, <laughs> sort of, that's, a, that's a fascinating question because actually what drew me to uh, the University of Washington was because I was a Washington resident and I, and I was in a position where I had to basically support my own education. And I had to um, go to a school that um, was really at a higher level, but somewhat affordable to what I could um, uh, make uh, during the summers working on construction sites. So um, that was certainly a, a determinator. Um, but also um, is because at that point in my life, I was doing a lot of mountain climbing and mountain skiing. and to you know, the Northwest is just really one of the premier locations for um, what we would call um, uh, mixed climbing, which is basically uh, all sorts of it's ice, it's snow, it's rock, it's, and it's in high desert locations, and it's in relatively um, rainforest locations, and uh, it's, got, it's got virtually every kind of condition you can imagine thrown at it, so it's a completely fascinating place to spend a lot of time. Uh, and it's got the topography. It's got big mountains and uh, big cliffs, and uh, it uh, goes on to uh, uh, really, in, it went on to really influence my, my decision to stay in the Northwest for both degrees. Even though I, I guess I could have gone to the East Coast, there were some opportunities there. Um, in retrospect, I, I made a decision to stay in the Northwest largely because of the, uh, the situation here, especially with the natural landscape. Mm, interesting. Um, I, that actually leads me to a question uh, further down the track, but I'm going to skip to that because I think that's a great segue. Uh, you've just described sort of some of the topography and the natural landscape of Seattle, but I'm wondering um, if you could describe the city for people like myself who've, who've never visited Seattle, which is where you, you know, you're at the moment uh, talking to me from, I'm wondering if you could describe that city from an architectural perspective, so the, the built environment. Oh, an architectural uh, perspective yeah. rather than an environmental? Yeah. That's actually really interesting. You know, um, do you know Sydney? I do, yeah. I'm from Melbourne, but yeah. I do know Sydney. Oh, <laughs> well, that's why I figured you might know. <laughs> Caught that in the accent a little bit. I thought you might know Sydney. Um, well, so you know how how Sydney actually, as a city, has um, some interesting um, situations, largely because of the topography. Mm -hmm. And in other words, it forces the hand of how it develops. And in in, in maybe a less complex way, Seattle has a very similar sort of topography and intersection with the, the shoreline and the mountains and the, and the and, and sort of rugged topography as the two come together. So that naturally affects uh, the city and how it's sort of laid out as a grid and how it developed. So in if you just as it as in if you fly into uh, Sydney, you find it oh that's a pretty darn interesting city from above. Seattle is very similar. It's very interesting from above. 
and when you land, it, it doesn't it it, it it doesn't let go. Um, it still is an interesting city uh, in the way it developed, in the way it morphed, in the way it um, uh, evolved. Now, architecturally, it was uh, it was I don't know if this shares this with Sydney, but um, uh, Seattle was is a is what sometimes referred to as a boom bust. Uh, city. It really had enormous booms with the gold, the lumber, fishery uh, industries. So there was a lot of very fast, um, almost um, uh, ill-planned uh, development of the city. And it suffers from that a little bit. Um, it's, it, it's, build, it's building stock, although maybe kind of interesting in, a, in, a, in some ways, it was also pretty fragile. Uh, because of that boom-bust cycle that we continue to experience with the uh, digital um, development and uh, uh, and software development worlds that, that we're really in right now, and Seattle certainly is part of that, that um, community. Um, so architecturally, it's, it's actually somewhat of a fascinating place because things happen so fast, they come, they, they appear quickly, and they disappear quickly. So it's a it's a uh, a city architecturally that blink of an eye what you thought was stable wasn't stable, and it goes away or or it shows up. That's that's fascinating. I think in retrospect to watch. In terms of um, special architectural moments, yes, like any city we have a few, and those are important. Um, but the cities. Uh, this city, if I were to just sit back and, and, and say, well, what, what really, why is, as an example, why is uh, Seattle different than Chicago, which has a much probably more uh, robust architectural building stock? I would say Chicago has a different sort of cultural backbone, underpinning. It's a different kind of economy. It certainly was a booming economy and it certainly grew quickly, but it's a different place. It's a, it's a place that had to make its place. Seattle didn't really have to make its place. It's already was here. The water was here. The mountains were here. There was sort of a almost an outward-looking uh, aspect to uh, the 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 culture that built this city. So there wasn't, I don't believe, quite as much um, care and focus on the uh, the built development of of the city. Therefore, there wasn't quite the same kind of care and development of the built structures in this. Uh, um, grid in this plant or in this uh, community. Um, but that doesn't mean that there isn't some totally fascinating uh, pieces of architecture, built architecture, and uh, totally fascinating uh, uh, sort of uh, understand, not understanding, but just sort of a, a almost big, so a voyeur like um, uh, perspective on, on watching how a city, how a city grows. In other words, we're a, we're a harbor city, uh, and I'm sure you've heard that description. Harbor cities are much different than river cities, mm. and I think that's true with Seattle. Mm. Does that make Does that make sense? It does. Yeah, that's really interesting. I I only really know Seattle from its musical history, uh, but uh, yeah, that makes me want to visit even more now. <laughs> um, well, yeah. So the music industry is actually really fascinating because it is this. Um, 
sort of unstable place up in the northwest corner. It's not only geologically unstable, it's been culturally unstable and economically unstable. And I think that, um, that instability, um, unstable sort of nature actually developed things, well, like Jimi Hendrix, who comes along and sort of twists the guitar in sort of a different way. And to this day, people are still blown away uh, by the depth of what, what he was experimenting with and what he was thinking about. Um, people like Ed Keenholz, you know, artists like Ed Keenholz came out of, uh, out of the Northwest, or Robert Motherwell, um, uh, you know, the, the, uh, the music industry of the uh, 80s and 90s. I mean, I was here when, when the grunge movement was sort of developing. Well, I mean, I, I wasn't a participant and I wasn't intimately involved in that music industry, but I certainly was aware of something happening and it had everything to do with um, this culture being kind of an outpost, kind of at its own sort of um, little self-referential place and whatever was developing had its own voice, had its own sort of quirky, um, uh, almost uh, weirdo-like uh, uh, development. And the rest, the rest is history. At some point, of course, it becomes more of a global um, uh, 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 development. But, it, but, but initially, it really could only start just because it had this sort of um, incubator, this sort of isolated incub incubator. Uh, called Seattle. Is that, does that kind of make sense? And I think yeah. that's true with some of the architecture also. Yeah, interesting. And, and you've touched obviously um, on the geology uh, and the landscape obviously before we started talking about the built environment and I think it's fairly evident that the land and, and your interest in geology um, is an influence on your work. So I would love to hear you describe your work or your approach. How would you talk about your architecture? Is there a kind of an easy, succinct description uh, of what you do or does it tend to be a little bit more um, poetic perhaps? I think intuitive is, is maybe the best way I can I can describe it and I, I think it is influenced by growing up in a very large landscape in eastern Washington, northern Idaho and, and southern British Columbia and Alberta. Um, I, I think um, in retrospect I can look back on what what my experience in those larger landscapes um, how they really affected the way I make decisions and the way I sort of think about things and I'm um, I'm very much sort of an intuitive culture uh, context driven designer in other words I go into whatever the situation is and I'm trying to learn as quickly as possible absorbing as quickly as possible an understanding of whatever the situation is what's the situation with the client what's the situation with current technology, with the situation with the program, with the situation with um, the climate, and absorbing it in a, in, a, in a sort of way that's actually respectful of that context more than trying to lead that context, if that makes sense. That's a very distinctly different way of designing, I think. I'm, you know, if you're trying to lead that context or so, somehow overpower that context, I think uh, that can lead to good architecture. Um, that can lead to good design. I think we've seen that, uh, but that's not my that's not my intuition. My intuition is to learn from the situation uh, as quickly as possible and be somewhat modest to that um, situation or um, somewhat reserved to that situation, and then make something out of it. Um, so I'm trying to um, 
carry on evolve that situation does that does that make sense and yeah. i think that's because i grew up in these big landscapes and i was in, not intimidated by them but i recognized that you know when you're in these big montana landscapes or idaho landscapes uh, uh, you are a very small part of that large landscape so it sort of puts you uh, in perspective of this sort of larger landscape universe cosmos that we live in which i think is good it's mm. a more modest position i think yeah, it sounds a bit like it, it instills a sense of respect in you for the, the natural world. Yes, exactly. Because you realize things are much bigger than you are, um, naturally. Mm. Well, I'd love to know, you know, I think it's quite common within the architectural community internationally to travel and look at the work of, of architects that, you know, each other architect admires. And I'd, I'd love to know if you're one of those architects, if, if that's something that inspires you by traveling internationally or within North America to look at what the work of other architects that you admire. Is that something that you do? And not actively. It's really funny. I've been really fortunate to run into architects that I do admire from afar and I've get, gotten to know them and I've got, gotten to see their, their projects and I couldn't, uh, couldn't be luckier, but, but I'm not, I'm, I never was that architect that had to travel um, around the world to, to visit, visit places. Now, again, I've been really super lucky to see the work um, internationally and just be um, blown away by both the ancient architecture um, and, you know, in the architecture of the last two years and the current architecture. There's some stuff that's been done, is being done, that um, to experience is just um, a deeply moving moving experience. I mean, it's architecture at its most powerful. Uh, and it's a, it's actually a privilege to, to visit some of those, some of those places. Could you maybe share a few of those locations and maybe other architects whose work that you enjoy? <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, I'm sure other architects have been there. You know, I remember going to, uh, I remember going to Ronchamp and when I was at University of Washington, I think I was in the master's program and I, I just said, well, I better go to Ronchamp, you know, and <laughs> almost somewhat reluctantly felt that it was a, it was a obligation to go to Ronchamp. I remember walking into Ronchamp and practically, um, practically burst into tears. It was such a powerful, it was such a powerful moment um, uh, to experience architecture for whatever reason um, at that level. And uh, it was the first time that I recall, other than maybe some um, emotional responses that I might have in a cathedral or, or something, um, you know, uh, something at that scale, where something at a small scale really moved me um, that deeply. And um, uh, so that was, that, was a, that was a moment in my life that I, that I, that I still recall. Uh, just a few years ago, I was traveling um, in Mexico City with a, with a scholar of Bargon's work and I, I went to the chapel and uh, uh, it was the same thing. I just, I, I was lucky. It happened to be a perfect day. Uh, I was essentially alone except for maybe three or four people that I knew except for the nun that was mm -hmm. taking us around. I didn't know the nun, but she was, <laughs> she was uh, showing us around. <laughs> and it was, it just was the same thing. It was the same thing. I, I just found myself um, emotionally moved. Uh, a spe I was speechless. And um, uh, I didn't even know some, you know, and, and really at the end of the day, architecture cannot really be experienced in a book, cannot be really experienced in a video 
or a drawing, it really has to be experienced in in the in the real place. And there were some there were some moments in there that uh, Baragon had had done, and maybe I should have known about those moments, but I had maybe forgotten. But it required that the sun move through the sky and that you spend some time there, as in a you know, if you were a Catholic, um, you would you would spend some time in this in this chapel, uh, meditating, praying, and oh my God! All of a sudden, I realized that he had he was doing some things with the cross that I had no idea, and it just blew me away, blew me away. And I'm not a Catholic, but it moved me, moved me um, um, to to basically tears. It was amazing, and I've you know. I, I've also, I've also, you know, even uh, I just remember going to right after it opened. I remember going to uh, Zoom, Zoomtor's uh, spa, Vols in Vols, and um, I, there was nobody there because it just had opened up. It was just like almost a, a soft opening, I think, or I don't even know if it was an opening. I somehow got in. I was able to experience um, that project, that masterpiece. Um, just by my, uh, not by myself, but virtually alone, and it was an, again one of those one of those moments in time where you just realize, well, this is what this is the power of architecture, and this is where it can go, um, it, when it's done when it's done correctly. I mean, it's rare for me. It's always been rare. Mm. Well, you've just reaffirmed my desire to go to Mexico when I'm able to travel again. So, thank you for sharing that with us. Um, I, I'd love to talk to you a bit about, um, you know, architects working in foreign cities. I think there's been a trend in perhaps the last decade or perhaps longer of, of what we're now calling star architects creating these, you know, very iconic buildings uh, that sometimes, in my opinion, feel a little bit out of sync with the city in terms of the, the fabric of, of the urban landscape and maybe even the pace of the city. Um, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts or opinions on that, because I know that you have actually worked on projects outside of North America. Mm -hmm. what, what comments well, do you have? Well, I, 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 I'm, I'm, yeah, I actually agree with your, your um, comment, I, 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 and, and for, a, for a couple of reasons, maybe, and it'll get into something, an agenda that's really important for me. Uh, but the first one is, in, in terms of the context of the city, it is sometimes uh, jarring, and you wonder, well, maybe it should be jarring. Um, I mean, I think uh, 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 Guggen, uh, Bill, Bilbao, you know, Guggenheim um, Museum is a good example where something maybe is considered jarring, but um, I think it's a masterpiece. And I think it works because it actually is a contextual piece. Um, it actually does work with the place, even though it, you know, in uh, you say, well, what does this have anything to do with the place? Well, if you go visit it, um, you you completely recognize now this 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 is a a piece that has to be here, um, and it and it works with this place uh, called Bilbao, um, and then there, but but that same uh, attitude of the jarring uh, object in the context of a of a built environment, of a historic environment, doesn't always work. And we've all seen those, and we've all experienced those, and we know them. And um, unless they're in the mass and in, in the hands of a, of a master like like Frank Gehry, um, I think they become, you know, they become really problematic. And I don't know how long their life 
Uh, and I, I, I know they'll be around for a couple hundred years, but I don't know how long the, the significance of their life. You know, they might be a flash in the pan, and I might have a lot of media exposure when they happen, uh, but then they just sort of drift away and they become sort of uh, almost dinosaurs or white elephants. And we've, uh, and we're going to, and we basically have inherited those. And when you have too many of those on the table, um, uh, you know, the, the city table, it just becomes this sort of chaos of, of uh, louder and louder uh, buildings. Um, and I think, uh, I think it is problematic. And, and I don't have a solution for it. It's just an observation that uh, for me, it makes more sense to be a little softer and more modest to the existing context, context and try to um, respond with a project that um, maybe naively, because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm coming from the outside and I'm coming in, but maybe coming from the outside, um, I have a fresh or other architects have a really fresh perspective on the situation. And maybe the work is actually um, more uh, important to the city because you are not burdened with um, some preconceptions of the city that you know so well. I'm not sure um, that is uh, uh, true or not, but it was an interesting conversation we had. Brian McKay Lyons is uh, um, what he called Ghost 13, which was this uh, seminar with just a fascinating seminar with a bunch of architects from around the world that called themselves regionalists. And to your point, Susie, um, virtually every one of those architects that called themselves regionalists were actually not working in their own regions, <laughs> which was kind of fascinating. <laughs> and it was kind of one of those moments where it goes, you know, we're actually not doing that many projects in our own hometowns. So what is what is that saying about us? And so, so then obviously the dialogue uh, circled around, well, you know, we are uh, regionalists in the sense that we do find inspiration from wherever we're working and we do try to understand and we do try to observe and, and uh, uh, put together uh, an appropriate uh, response to the situation. And the situation is not just built, it's also cultural, it's also economic, it's tectonic, it's, you know, it's all of those issues, but, you know, the skill of the architect ultimately is uh, the architectural group is how you assemble all those things into something that's meaningful. So hopefully at the end of the day, whatever you're doing, whether it's flamboyant or whether it's modest, it's meaningful and it has, has legs for, for um, a long time. Mm. This, the, sidebar, the sidebar comment I wanted to make about some of those um, projects um, is, and this is, and, and this is kind of interesting because we, I continue to do um, small projects, very small projects, you know, 300, 400 square feet or 30 square meters, you know, something, something quite small, whether they're little huts or um, little pop-ups or whatever. And I, you know, I've been interviewed and said, well, those are the experiments. So that, that's where I'm able to sort of um, uh, work on something very quickly and sort of imagine with a group of people something and get it out and see how it works and what, what's, what's good about it, what, what maybe is, is uh, a challenge about whatever that idea might be. And of course, a lot of that work is residential because you're working for a private client um, on, a, on a custom situation. And, and some of them are quite small, you know, 150 square meters for a house in Rio de Janeiro, uh, the Rio house. Uh, that's what the client felt that that's all they needed. Well, I couldn't be more excited about that. 
that's that's the kind of scale that's very very interesting. Um, and the reason I one reason I really find uh, important about buildings at that scale is that then you're really working at the human scale. You're really working at the personal scale. You know the size of a person. You know this. You know what what's flow. What is proportion? You know what's this sort of human proportion? The sort of humanistic uh, approach. Um, a lot of the real uh, a lot of my uh, uh, historic mentors like Corbusier or uh, Kahn um, or, or uh, current ones like Glenn Merkett, you know, um, who I think is a fantastic uh, current architect. They understand architecture at this sort of garden level, you know, they understand it at the human level. And then uh, when they go to the larger level, they bring a lot, so many times they bring that kind of uh, instinct, that kind of understanding to the larger buildings. I think some of these larger buildings lack that kind of background that sometimes they become sort of, uh, not become, but they are somewhat soulless. Um, and unless there, unless there's a real understanding of this, this what it means to be a human, it means to be a human being and, and seeking shelter, um, and I think something can be lost in the translation if you don't have that kind of background. Is that, is that make, at, at yeah. sort of uh, more, uh, uh, human scale. Does that make, Absolutely. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, and I could not agree more. Um, so, given that your your architecture is is so sort of rooted in its place and connected to a location, and then obviously created for a human being or several human beings, I, I'm, I would love to know how much time typically you're spending on site at the actual uh, location. Uh, yeah, boy, that is a good, that is a really good question. I think, um, of course, I'm more stressed with time now than ever. Um, I've got more work than I've had in the past. In the past, I've spent as much time as I possibly can on the sites, um, especially during construction, because during construction, uh, uh, just a little sidebar on that, I, I began to recognize about five years ago that, you know, my drawings or our drawings as architects, they're kind of like the musician, uh, the composer, you know, the composer's making all these funny little marks on these, on these, uh, uh, graphs. And, and that's, that's, uh, those are instructions and that, and that's, uh, that's jargon for the musicians to then play their instruments. Um, but, but the composers aren't really playing that instrument. Um, I think architects, in, in some ways have a similar role, you know, sort of the, we can, like my friends that are composers, they look at a sheet of music and they can hear that music. They can, you know, they just look at, they just look at that information on that, what looks like a, a piece of paper and they hear the music. And um, I don't, because I, I don't know how to really read music uh, at that level, but I can look at a set of plans of a building, regardless if it's large or small, and I can hear, in a sense, the music. I can actually feel that building, and that comes with time. That comes with experience. Um, but um, but until, for most people, whatever I'm feeling in those plans, or what architects are feeling in those plans, doesn't really happen until it's built. So your musicians are your craftspeople that are actually assembling this building out on the site. So the more you can engage your site and engage the very people that are, in a sense, making the music and building the building, 
uh, the better you're going to have uh, of an understanding with those musicians of what they're building. And they, they can bring things, they can bring things to um, the building uh, uh, process that you can't. You know, they can, uh, they can bring you ideas, they can, they can uh, spend a little extra time on something, you know, as it comes together and make it beautifully beautiful beyond what it was just supposed to be, beyond just a commodity. It can actually um, uh, become involved, in a sense, in the building, and I think that's really important. Well, that only happens when the, the musicians understand that the composer is interested in what they're doing. So you have to spend time on the site, and you have to make sure that they, they know how much you appreciate what they're doing. Um, to learn about the site, do you, I mean, that's during construction. But, but to actually learn about the site, to actually understand it, um, I, you know, I think this is true for most architects that have been around business for a while. Um, you do become pretty, uh, a pretty quick study of, of topography, a pretty quick study of, of a situation. Uh, it's just, it's like practice, right? You, you just know, you're not, you're not going back to old, uh, if you're, if, if you're going to be sincere about what you're doing, you're not going back to old um, habits, but you're using your old tools that you've honed over the course of your career. So these are tools like, you know, you could say they're literally like tools, hammers, saws, whatever, drills. Well, it does, that's not the thing, but those are the, those are the things you're using to solve the problem. So I don't know if this makes sense, Susie, but you, I can go, in, I I can go into a situation and I can carry my bags of tools and I can send, and I can scope out the situation, and I can get right to it, and have, and even see the end game in a sense—not the end solution, but how we get to the end. Game. Does that make sense? Yeah, I love that. That's such a great analogy, and it's it's a great segue to my my final question for you, which is actually a quote. Uh, from one of my favourite philosophers, Alain de Botton, who I believe shares a Swiss heritage with you. Um, uh -huh. and, and this quote is um, that he worries that architecture is the preserve of genius, not craftsmen. And I'd love to hear your thoughts on that statement. Whoa, I haven't heard that one. <laughs> what? That's interesting. Try that one on me again. I want to think about so that. That's a good one. It, he worries that architecture is the preserve of genius, not craftsmen. Ah. It gets you thinking, doesn't it? Whoa, yeah, you know, it almost paralyzes me. And, and I don't know if there's been a, I don't know in any of these interviews if, if I've been paralyzed like this. And, and I, thanks, Susie. <laughs> I'm not <laughs> but, sure if but it's a good thing or a bad thing. No, it's a, it's a really good thing. No, it, it's a good thing because I'm gonna, I'm obviously going to have some sort of response, but I'll bet you in about two or three days, I'm going to wish I had another kind of response. <laughs> you can email me. <laughs> it, it, it kind of, it's, it's a, yeah, it kind of puts you back on your heels uh, a little bit. Um, Cause I want to know exactly, well, I can't, but I, I, I'm curious what exactly he means. I mean, when I hear that, I, um, what I'm hearing, and maybe this is my, my bias, um, uh, that um, that architects uh, might uh, be oh, what's the best way to describe this might be if, if, I don't know if this is genius or if this is just um, missing the point uh, if that makes sense um, that the uh, 
you know that the, the profession of architecture is so tied up into uh, the sort of academics and the genius of what it's about that they miss the point that basically we're making beautiful things for people in shelter and that the craftsman knows exactly what they're doing. They're making places that are, that are stable and beautiful and well fit, finished. It's almost a simpler, um, it's almost a, like a simple way of making shelter and then the geniuses are, are uh, over abstracting it and overthinking it and doing what <laughs> Uh, one of my first employees, employers said, um, architects answer questions no one asked. That was <laughs> That's a good one. Kind of an interesting, kind of an interesting, and sometimes I, I remind myself, and you know, sometimes I even say it around here in the off, office that, you know, when we're stuck with a situation or maybe overthinking it, um, and I, I didn't make this up, I heard it from somebody else, says, well, what would a farmer do? You know, <laughs> a, a, a farmer's going to solve this problem. Um, in as a rational you know, way as possible, and uh, uh, it's a good way to sometimes get unstuck from getting overly complicated about it, about a situation. Uh, again, I'm not exactly sure if that's if that's the, the, the correct way to sort of talk about it. Um, I think that's I, a pretty great. I remember answer. once. Yeah, you know, I I heard once an academic say. To another academic, I overheard him because I was I was in the group actually, and um, they said something about um, you know, that that uh, for the most part, building architects are really not doing architecture; uh, they're just they're just the plumbers, <laughs> you know, basically of the profession. And I thought plumbers, you know, well, first of all, that's a noble profession, you know. Yeah. <laughs> I, uh, I think uh, that was somewhat uh, unfortunate thing for. For, for that person to say, but I mean, I understood the intent. The intent was, oh well, yeah, um, you know, the architects that are actually getting buildings built, um, they're the, uh, uh, you know, they're the crass people. They're the, they're the sort of uh, 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 laborers in the sense. I mean, there's a better word for it. I'm looking for, but but and it, the academics are actually doing that. And, and that's what this person said. The academics is where the real architecture happens. And um, I don't, I don't, I don't agree with that, of course. But that was an interesting bifurcation. And of course, there's always been this bifurcation um, between uh, in the architecture profession, between um, the architecture profession that actually endeavors to uh, build things, and then and the academics, which um, sometimes builds things, but for the most part is involved in the philosophy of uh, architecture. It's a really, it's a really, it's a, it's a, it's a question that actually stumped me, Susan. <laughs> it's a good one. I'm glad. Well, look, thank you so much. It's been an absolute pleasure chatting with you, and you know we really appreciate your time. I'm, I'm hoping that you're still keeping busy through these difficult times, and that you're all staying safe as well. Yeah. Yeah, well, thank you, and I hope you're staying safe. Uh, are you down in Melbourne? Uh, I'm you, actually in Hong Kong at the moment. Oh, <laughs> which has a different set of well, problems at the moment. Yeah, exactly. I was going to say, you, yeah, we all we all are in these sort of interesting situations. Yeah. But uh, yeah, stay healthy, stay safe, and uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully, one of these days we meet yeah. and uh, and we get back to a sort of a normal. I hope so too. Thank you so much, Tom. Thanks, Dizzy.